Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, joins us from Mexico City to discuss the latest with the Three Amigos Summit. Three years have passed since the Iranian military shot down flight PS752, and loved ones are still wondering why the government has not held Iran responsible. And critics are blasting the foreign government's defense of Bill 124 after new revelations were revealed. We delve into those reports with Sabrina Nanji, the publisher of the Queen's Park Observer. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We go south uh, to the Three Amigos meeting, uh, which is continuing today. As a matter of fact, uh, at, in just a few minutes, we're told that the Mexican president and uh, the Canadian prime minister will meet. Uh, prime Minister Trudeau sat down for face-to-face talks with his American and Mexican counterparts uh, for the Three Amigos Summit. Uh, the prime minister says leaders uh, touched on, well, crucial trilateral issues, including collective support for Ukraine in its war with Russia. More about that in a second. And the best way forward on gang-ravaged Haiti and the tide of irregular migration going across the U.S. border and Mexico. Here's the prime minister. We made progress on a lot of different things today. There's a lot going on in the world right now, and as North American leaders, we recognize the roles our countries play in being a source of stability and security, not just in the region, but around the world. So when you get into a situation like this, it's almost like there's a scorecard. Here's what we want to accomplish. Here's what we did accomplish. Uh, and and the, you'll evaluate the meeting based on that, I suppose. I want to bring uh, Stephen Chase into the conversation here. Stephen is a senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail who's covering this event. Uh, Stephen, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Uh, glad to be here. I hope it's not too noisy here for me. But, uh, yeah, we're down here in Mexico City, and Trudeau is uh, just about to give a speech at a university in Mexico City about uh, attracting investment to Canada. So uh, we're on day three of this trip. Stephen, give an idea of the tone here. Uh, you know, this is much anticipated, of course, because there wasn't one last, uh, well, the last little while. Uh, you know, when the Mexican president and President Biden met uh, in the early moments of this, uh, we were told it was a rather uh, cantankerous Mexican president that uh, talked to the Biden about abandoning Mexico and, and, and a number of other things like this. Is there a positive vibe here or it, uh, some acrimony? What, what, do you, what do you sense? There's a lot of things going on. Um, yes, uh, Lopez Obrador tends to like to uh, lecture and even rant uh, at his guests uh, and even uh, and hold forth for record 27 minutes yesterday in one media question. But uh, there, everybody comes to this, this event, this Three Amigos Summit, also called the North American Leader Summit, with a different agenda. And they try to, to, they try to, to, get, to, to get the discussion focused on their issues. So there's almost way too much to, to cover here in terms of uh, what each country wants to talk about. And in many ways, it's really two bilateral summits and then a brief uh, uh, three-way summit. The Americans want, the Mexicans want to get as much face time with the Americans as possible, same as the Canadians. So we're on day three here. Uh, this, the summit actually technically wrapped up yesterday, and now we're uh, basically in the Canada-Mexico end of things. There's a lot of... Uh, Disputes between Canada and Mexico that have cropped up in the uh, in the short few years since uh, since uh, the the new NAFTA was renegotiated. Canada, Canadian uh, companies are being uh, frozen out of the energy market because uh, Lopez Obrador is is essentially nationalizing or giving preferential treatment to state-owned companies, and uh, Canadian mining companies are getting a lot of grief in their investments. And so there's a, there's a, a a lot of things on the go, and Mr. Trudeau wants to make progress on those things. 
but they also uh, they share common interests in indigenous reconciliation in uh, in uh, you know promoting uh, reconciliation with indigenous people and bringing them into the into the process of you know economic development and so on. So it's a it's a grab bag. Haiti is uh, uh, hanging over the meeting. Obviously, the the future of Haiti. The, the Americans clearly wanted Canada to step up and take a role to lead a, a mission there. Canada clearly doesn't want to do that. And Mr. Trudeau pointedly suggested yesterday that in fact the U.S. should try sanctions as a first as a first step. Uh, the U.S. in fact has not sanctioned some of the Haitian elite who are believed to be responsible for the problem there, where Canada has. So uh, you know. Lots of issues to talk about. Also, reducing North American dependence on China—that was a big theme. Yeah, so so a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about here. Not clear. There's a lot of uh, solutions being um, being hammered out here. Although there was a deal on Nexus, which is a, a, a should be a relief for a lot of Canadians who want to get the uh, the value Nexus card to cross the border a lot quicker. Yeah, I, I want to swing back to Haiti in a second, but let's talk about Nexus, uh, since that seems to be one area where there was uh, some agreement on this. Uh, are you surprised it took this long? I mean, as you look at the potential solution here, uh, it the first question I had as I read some of the details is, what? Why, why didn't this happen six months ago? It's getting really loud in here. I think you're asking me about Nexus, right? Yeah, and, 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 okay. and why it took so, so long Nexus, to actually cut a deal. They didn't really solve looks... the Nexus problem. Nexus, Nexus is a card, a very popular uh, what's called the Trusted Traveler Program, but allows Canadians to basically uh, go through an express customs and express, and often get uh, a special line of security uh, going into air, airport screening. So it, it is a, a godsend for people who don't want to spend as uh, much time in, in customs lineups because you've given you basically give uh, the Americans a lot of personal uh, biometric data and so on. But anyways, the program went off the rails because uh, the uh, Nexus offices across Canada were customs where U.S. Customs officials were stationed. Uh, the U.S. Customs uh, off, uh, border officers decided they wanted the same legal protections. For instance, they could, that they couldn't be sued for their conduct on Canadian soil in much the same way that the people at the pre-clearance uh, airport U.S. Customs officials' offices have. And that this, this workaround that was announced yesterday doesn't solve any of that. In fact, it just kind of basically, uh, like I said, works around it. You basically, uh, previously you would go to a uh, an office near an airport in Canada, and you would uh, conduct the two interviews, one with the Canadians and one with the Americans, as part of the process of getting your card. Those offices have been closed because of this dispute, uh, and now they're going to be reopened, but you're only going to do your Canadian interview there. If you want to do your American interview, you actually have to be on a flight to the U.S., and once you go through pre-clearance at, uh, at a Canadian airport, you can then do your, your U.S. interview and, of course, then get your card pretty quickly after that. So the workaround is basically to sort of not solve the the U.S. demand for legal protection and uh, essentially split the interviews up into two, into two parts. I, and, but it doesn't do anything about the backlog, does it? I'm sorry, uh, Bill. It's really I loud. Understand. I no, I... move somewhere where I can hear you better. Apologies. No, not a problem, Stephen. I understand. There's a, a big crowd there, obviously, and uh, uh, we don't hear as much of it, of course, here on the air. But I know on the, I've been in their ex exact position where you are too, and it's 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 frustrating and difficult. I was, I was just yeah, going to say you were explaining about if Nexus. If you want to bear with me about ten seconds, I'm just going to walk out of the room because sure. I can't hear anything. Sure. We're talking with Stephen Chase here, who is live in Mexico right now, Mexico City, uh, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, who's been uh, covering the meeting of the three amigos. And uh, we're basically going down and checking some boxes here about some of the things that Prime Minister okay, Trudeau wanted to accomplish. You got it back? Okay, good. Uh, yeah. We, you were just explaining the Nexus uh, solution, and I use that term advisedly. 
but one of the elements that I think was frustrating, especially Canadians here, was the backlog, as you mentioned, because these things were not being processed. Uh, the the proposal that they're talking about here right now doesn't do a whole lot about that, does it? It it does deal with the backlog by reopening these Nexus interview centers. Unfortunately, to finish the process, you actually have to be in, take a flight to the U.S. So, and the Canada's the Canadian government's defense of this is well, it is really for travelers who are traveling to the U.S. So, it, it aims to clear the backlog by opening up the eight enrollment centers again that are close to or at eight Canadian airports. But to finish the process, you have to be, actually be taking a flight to the U.S. Let's swing back, if I could, to Haiti. You mentioned uh, that that was a, a point of discussion. Uh, actually, a carryover from discussions that Biden and Trudeau had some months ago uh, about assistance there, and they wanted Canada to take a lead role. Uh, it, it sounds as if it was kind of a thanks but no thanks uh, from the prime minister in response to this. Uh, how yeah, does the U.S. respond to this? They, uh, because this is this is really tied into to the migration to the migrant problem too, isn't it? Well, it, to the extent that the Haitians are some of the migrant groups that are moving through. Mexico into the United States, yes. The other, the other side to this, though, is that uh, you know what they're basically asking the Canadians to do, as I understand it, uh, is to head a, a quasi-military assistance in the in the police force, the Haitian police force, which basically means uh, that they, the potential is for them to go head-to-head against some of the gangs that are really controlling the ports and, and a number of the other elements in Haiti right now. They're part of the problem. Uh, but that's yeah. a, a rather confrontational prospect that uh, that they're proposing there. So I, I can understand how the prime minister would be, you know, with some trepidation, saying, "I don't think we want to do it that way." Well, yeah, and, and also the question is, it's it's one of those missions that's hard to extricate yourself from because yeah, uh, ha- ha- Haiti's problems are are persistent, not uh, not solvable in the short term. And of course, as you know, our military is stretched pretty thin. We have recruitment problems. We have the huge commitment in the in in the uh, in the Baltics, Latvia, our largest deployment, and we have also we've had to commit to maintaining a readiness, a rapid response readiness force to be deployed from Canada at a moment's notice if there's ever a, a problem with Russia. So that's that's a no, and they're they're going to continue to talk about that. I'm not so sure if the, the alternative the Canada is proposing right now. I think sanctions. Canada will be open to uh, sending down some police, uh, like uh, a number of police officers to help you know, RCMP and so on, but I don't mm-hmm. think they're interested in leading it, and that's where the problem lies, is nobody's going well, to take uh, charge of this, and Canada and, and the United States have largely have been the main uh, foreign countries that have uh, taken action to help Haiti in the past. There's not a lot of other people stepping up. Well, it's it's going to be interesting to see how that happens. I know that a lot of our contribution in the past has been humanitarian because of some of the yep. uh, elements that have happened there, hurricanes, etc. But this is this is a a, a gang problem, and it's uh, it's there's no easy fix for this. I got a couple of minutes left. I want to swing back if I could to uh, to as you mentioned about the the uh, economic uh, partnership with these three folks, uh, Stephen. Uh, and of yep. course, we all know about the commitment everybody's making right now to electronic vehicles and and. Uh, the private sector, the public sector seem to be on side. We were told one of the things that the prime minister was looking for in this meeting uh, was some sort of an agreement, a tripartite agreement to actually extract the minerals from, well, you know, I guess in our case here, uh, the Ring of Fire in northern Ontario, uh, and develop them to get the industry along. And uh, I, I got the sense that uh, both uh, the Mexican and American presidents were a little reticent to get involved in that, basically saying, Canada, you're not even ready to do this yet. Yeah, one of the problems, as you know, is Canada's regulatory, you know, regulatory system for projects. There is not, there is a, um, there is an interest in, in Canada 
getting a, a greater share of the jobs that would result from an interest in critical minerals. For instance, they'd mm-hmm. like to do the processing. They'd like to do more than just rip things out of the ground and ship them to the U.S. And yes, there's a lot of impatience about the ring of fire and the and the prospects for development there. So that that plays into it. Canada can't argue that uh, it's on the cusp of something. In fact, uh, as you may have seen, the Globe reported a, a few weeks ago, uh, one federal official even questioned whether some of these projects would go ahead. Well, and le- which lies the problem. And I guess, as you mentioned, a lot of this is regulatory. Uh, you know, getting them out of the ground is one thing. But uh, yeah, as you say, there's a long, long list of things that they have to do to actually get the permission to do that. And that, uh, the, the report in the Globe said that could take anywhere from six to eight years in some cases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's that's something. And, and of course, there's there's the clock is ticking in this situation. There's a bit of a pressure here, is there not, Stephen, because uh, of the commitment that, the, that the, the private sector has made to this to try to move these along. And even the government, you know, talking about the fact that they want most of the cars sold in Canada by 2030 to be EVs. Well, not if you can't get the stuff out of the ground. Well, that's a real problem, which the auto industry has been highlighting here at the meeting, is that the, the Canada set this uh, zero emission vehicle mandate for 2026 to 20% of cars, and then even more by 2030. And yet, we, we don't have the lithium for the batteries. We don't have the infrastructure to provide North American lithium for that, Canadian lithium. We're going to, because of that uh, mandate, we're going to have to rely on Chinese batteries and Chinese cars. So it doesn't actually do anything to reduce uh, reliance on China. If not, maybe increase it even more. Stephen, I, I appreciate your reporting on this. I know it's kind of crazy when you've got a large group of people like that. And I really uh, thank you for taking some time to talk with us this morning. Always happy to. Take care. Stephen Chase, who is the senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail. He's in Mexico City with uh, the Prime Minister and the Canadian entourage. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Somber scene in Toronto this past weekend. Uh, the Prime Minister was among those marking three years since the Iranian military shot down flight PS752. And along with the, the grieving relatives in this commemorative ceremony in Toronto over the weekend, uh, the Prime Minister committed once again to seeking justice for the victims of this tragedy. This tragedy happened because of the Iranian regime's heinous disregard for human life. Your grief has been compounded by their refusal to be held accountable. Uh well, there's some concern about a number of the, the aspects of what these said. Some people suggesting that uh, the Prime Minister's comments three years after the fact really just cutting and pasting what he said three years ago. There's been a lot of talk and not a whole lot of action uh, to try to find compensation and some sense of justice for these people. Uh, Tasha Curitan writes about this in the National Post. Uh, Tasha, of course, is a principal at Navigator and author of the book The Right Path. And she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. I'll be late at Happy New Year. Good to have you on the program again, Tasha. Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you. Uh, this is a, a story that, that haunts us and continues to haunt us. I mean, the very idea of, of passenger airlines being shot out of the sky is is scary at best. And, and we, we saw this and we immediately said, well, something has to be done about this. And I know the Canadian government has talked about sanctions, but that's that's not really justice, is it? It's not, not for the families involved. Um, and uh, they've become more and more vocal. They even picketed the International Aviation Association uh, in Montreal. They had their head office there because they said that the government is not doing enough. And, you know, it's it's now it's been three years. The government 
uh, Canada and, and the UK and a couple of other countries are finally taking Iran to international arbitration. They're going to try and force them to compensate these families uh, because the court process is going nowhere uh, in Canada. Um, but they could have done this before. They could have they could have you know short circuited that and tried to get them to arbitration internationally. They could have also had an RCMP investigation into what actually happened. Um, they could also have listed the uh, Revolutionary Guard, the actual organization that shot down the plane uh, as a terrorist group. You know, it's uh, it's been recognized as one essentially since 2012 by uh, the Canadian government here. It severed ties with Iran over that over the actions of that group and other things. But they've never formally declared a terrorist organization and they still haven't done that. Um, so a lot of unanswered questions by the families as to why the government's been so slow to, to really take any serious action on this. Now, now, as I understand it, because some people may be saying, "Well, what what's the difference if you you know name them a terrorist organization or not?" Uh, it 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 if in fact that were to happen, and I, I agree with you, I think it should have happened some time ago. Uh, it does change the path of of going after compensation for these people if if you're using that moniker as a as a terrorist organization, and I, I'm it's a head scratcher as to why they haven't done it because they've talked about how heinous these people are. You just heard the comments from the prime minister from this past Sunday, yet they don't want to seem to take that step. Are they are they concerned about about what might happen and 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 you know how Iran might push back? Um, it's, it's, they claim it's less about Iran pushing back. They say that because uh, Iran has conscription, that people who were conscripted into the Revolutionary Guard uh, in non-combat roles who want to come to Canada could be affected. Literally, that's the issue. I mean, they're, they're barring 10,000 members from coming to Canada as of October. But the reason they really ramp things up in October, it's no coincidence, of course, is that Iran became engulfed in the protests of uh, Masa Amini's death, the uh, 22-year-old woman who was who was killed because in police custody in Iran because she was wearing, she refused to wear her headscarf and she was then arrested. And those protests engulfed Iran. Um, they became a political issue here, uh, protests in Canada about what was happening at the regime. Other politicians were speaking out, including the conservatives. And, you know, it all of a sudden became an issue. The issue became live. And so all of a sudden, the government decided to act. They shouldn't have waited that long. It shouldn't have taken that to make them take action. How frustrated are the are the the victims' families in in a situation like this? And you know, there's a companion story that that we just heard about, uh, I guess, a little while ago, uh, that there were an element here that were actually trying to seize the assets of some Iranians yep. who they thought responsible. And the court basically said, "No, we can't let you do that." And the federal government actually fought them on that. Correct. I saw that article actually just this morning. Um, it's uh, it's on CBC News site and talking mm -hmm. about the court case um, where families did win the right to uh, to some compensation. The question is, how do you realize that? How do you actually get the, the money? So they want to seize assets in Canada of um, Iran and Iranians. And uh, what the government has said, the federal government has actually said, well, under international law, um, you can't do that. They still have a version of international or diplomatic immunity, even though, like I said, we severed relations with Iran in 2012. Um, so it really, it's it's shocking that the federal government is making that argument or made that argument at the same time as Justin Trudeau is standing on the stage with his ministers saying how terrible this is and how they're going to do more. Well, they've got to be asking themselves, I'm talking about the families here, is, you, you know, you promised us that we, you had our backs here, and now you're fighting us on this. Well, you know, where, where's the compensation and, and, and where's the support that these families need? 
Well, they're asking themselves that for sure. It's $107 million that was awarded to uh, to families of five people who, who died. Um, and of course, there are 176 people who died, including, I think it's almost 85 Canadians, uh, permanent residents or citizens of our country. So the number could go much higher um, as those other families seek justice. To know that you'd be barred from actually realizing the claim is, you know, it's it's terrible. I mean, what a blow. So, um, you know, they I mean, they've been speaking out uh, in the media and and saying that they are, you know, that they feel this is this the government's not doing enough. Um, and while they welcome some of the actions like the the barring of the ten thousand people from the IRGC from coming in, they said, well, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg kind of thing, and that should have happened years ago. I, I know that this is something that the opposition parties have uh, latched onto as well. I know Mr. Polyev was there uh, for the commemoration uh, the, uh, ceremony of, as well. And, and he seemed to echo, and I think, the sentiment of an awful lot of people that said, look, just make this an illegal organization, uh, label them for what they are, and, and go after them that way. Uh, is it yeah. that simple, Tasha? Well, yeah, it's 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 not simple, but I mean, he should have. He, he makes a, a good point. I mean, he makes the right point. And like I said, the 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 fact that the conservatives have taken this issue up, it shouldn't have come to that to get the government to take notice of it and see it as an actual election or or uh, an issue for Canada for for voters. Because I mean, the direct people who are affected here, it's it's not a huge group of people. It's people who've had a horrible tragedy tear apart their lives. They're seeking justice, but the larger community also is looking at this and going, wait a minute, why aren't you get taking, you know, having their back, so to speak? And because of what's happening in Iran, too, this is the thing is that people are realizing the violations of human rights, um, you know, are affecting millions of people in that country as well. So the issues now become live. But like I said, it shouldn't have taken that for the government to suddenly realize it has to do something. So hopefully they will um, list the organization. Hopefully the attention on this court case too will make them change their tune and find a way for these these families to actually be able to get their hands on that money, which is according to a court owed to them. Who's dropping the ball here? Uh, which department? I, you know, I don't expect the prime minister or whomever it might be, Trudeau in this particular case, uh, to be singularly focused on this. But I mean, you delegate that and say, look, this has got to get fixed. And, and I don't know if that conversation ever happened with anybody. Well, um, you know, I mean, it's um, Melanie Jolie would be the minister. She was actually there. She was president and Omar Al-Gabra because it's a transportation issue as well, because it was an airline in this particular case. But like I said, it goes beyond the airline incident. Um, it really is a foreign affairs issue. Uh, and so she would carry that ball. Um, there's been a lot of balls in the air, of course, with what's been happening in Ukraine, what's been happening with regard to China, um, the release of the Indo-Pacific strategy recently. Uh, her department's been very busy. I get it. But there's been three years. <laughs> three years to do something on this file and nothing's been done so uh, it, it really that's where the, the buck really stops is with those those ministers there's a an, an opportunity here for canada to take a lead role in addressing some of the the human rights violations uh attributed to iran and and, and you know you talked about the the tragic death of masha amini uh, and but there have been other incidents too we've all seen uh the, the protests that have gone on there the arrests that have been made by the iranian government uh and this and and I don't think it's it's too much of a stretch to try to connect the dots here between what happened three years ago, what's happening there now, uh, and and the demand, I think, for some international response, not just a Canadian government response, but an international response to what's happening in Iran. 
Yeah, there definitely is. I mean, according to reports, um, both inside the country and this group, human rights activist uh, that agency, that they, twenty thousand people have been arrested. Twenty thousand arrested, not killed. Uh, Justin Trudeau actually had a tweet that erroneously said that they, I think, it's fifteen or twenty thousand people have been murdered. That's not the case. Um, as so far, over five hundred protesters have been killed, including seventy children, which is, you know, appalling in and of itself. Um, twenty thousand people arrested. Uh, the country, of course, engulfed in, in in all sorts of strife and people living with this on a daily basis there, trying to essentially overthrow their government. Now, Canada has been instrumental in championing human rights in oppressive situations. If you go back to you know what happened in South Africa um, and, and ending apartheid in that country through collective sanctions and pressure from countries around the world, spearheaded in large part by Canada. And that was that was a successful effort where we punched above our weight. Um, and Prime Minister Mulroney at the time was, you know, convincing other leaders around the world, including Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, to, to jump on board. Um, in this case, uh, you know, Canada's not being a leader on on this issue. Um, I think one of the concerns for the international community, of course, is Iran's nuclear capabilities. Um, you know, push comes to shove, would would that be an issue that is preventing them from taking stronger sanctions? I don't know. I'm not, you know, privy to <laughs> to to information like that, but I'm assuming that you know there there's a concern that as a rogue state iran has to be it, it would be much better if there was a democratic regime in iran you really would you know mm -hmm. it would be just in the interest of the entire international community that that would happen apart from perhaps you know, russia and china but they're not really on our side either so um i think that canada has to step up internationally and work with our partners and our allies to yes amp up the pressure and try and help the people there who are seeking democratic change and I know we're just about out of time, but to your point uh, about our, our track record there, uh, Brian Mulroney made it a priority uh, and, and yeah. he leaned on his allies. He leaned on Margaret Thatcher and leaned on Ronald Reagan. Uh, so even if, as you say, we were punching about our weight, but uh, we had some pretty strong allies uh, behind us right now. And they saw that and they knew that in South Africa and that resonated because of that. I'm not so sure this is a priority for this government, though. No. Well, I, like I said, there's so many issues that have that have come up um for the federal government to deal with on the international stage and i think the biggest elephant in the room is is china um and uh we've seen all sorts of uh issues crop up lately about chinese infiltration into canada uh various levels and uh you know whether it's police stations on our soil uh whether it's uh, accusations that they've been funding candidates in the 2019 election i mean the list goes on right so um i think the federal government is feeling the heat on that but it just makes the point that it's not really the, the government doesn't seem to be very good at dealing with threats to democracy and the threats that dictatorships around the world like Iran, China and Russia pose to Canada and other democratic nations. And we have to take that more seriously. This isn't just another symptom of that. They have to get their they have to get on the ball with this or else, um, you know, our democracy will be threatened. Tasha Kiridan, uh, principal navigator, uh, uh, principal navigator, of course, and of course, the author of uh, The Right Path. Great book, by the way. People should check that out. If you didn't get it for Christmas, go buy it for yourself with one of the gift cards you got. Uh, anyway, uh, as always, Tasha, thanks so much for this. We'll talk again soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about uh, what's happening in Queen's Park. Uh, the Ford government uh, is once again under pressure because of uh, documents that have been uncovered uh, that admit that Bill 124 uh, is actually part of the problem here. The fact that it is restricting wages and there are low wages to begin with is uh, a contributing factor and a major contributing factor in the, the retention of, of trained nurses here. 
this is an internal document was obtained by Global News that revealed that the province is aware of this negative impact. And notwithstanding that, notwithstanding that their own staff had said that it's a problem, and notwithstanding the fact that uh, the courts have already ruled that it's unconstitutional, they're going ahead uh, with a, a, an attempt anyway to try to appeal that con- uh, that process from the courts. Of course, they'll use our taxpayers' money to do this. Uh, and as a result, of course, uh, that this is out here, uh, there's been a lot of criticism, a lot of pressure on the government. Health Minister Sylvia Jones was asked about why they're continuing to do this in spite of the fact that the data that she has says that it's it's part of the problem, not part of the solution. Well, she was asked about the document, but she, well, sort of sidestepped the question. Here's how it went. So there is no doubt that we have seen incredible work done by our healthcare professionals, nurses, uh, physicians working in emergency departments in a frankly challenging time as we still deal with the uh, remnants of COVID-19 and other respiratory illnesses. Uh, okay, nice dance, uh, but it doesn't really address the question, does it? Uh, th- which is why we have people like uh, Sabrina Nanji uh, at Queen's Park to make sure that uh, they, we do hold these people's feet to the fire. Uh, Sabrina, of course, is the publisher of Queen's Park Observer, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about uh, the document, uh, the revelation here, and the government's response to it. Uh, I, I guess th- these documents, Sabrina, uh, pretty much validate what uh, you and others have been saying for the longest time here, uh, that that this bill, as it was presented, is part of the problem here. It's not the solution. As a matter of fact, it's exacerbating the problem. Yeah, you're exactly right, Bill. And, you know, things have really started off with a bang uh, this year at, at Queen's Park. Um, I, I'm actually hoping that we'll get to, to um, you know, ask the Health Minister Sylvia Jones questions about this. Um, there was a bit of drama around that, which we can dig into uh, yesterday, but she'll be, you know, um, speaking with the Premier, um, Doug Ford, at his first press conference at a Shoppers Drug Mart in Etobicoke a bit later today. So um, I I think we know, you know, at least some of the questions that that Ford and Jones will be asked, and and certainly these documents that Global unearthed uh, will will be top of mind for a lot of folks. But I think you're right. You know, these internal documents revealed um, something that, that, you know, uh, is very important and significant, but not a whole lot surprising. This is something we've been hearing from healthcare workers, unions, nurses, uh, you name it, that Bill 124, which just as a reminder, capped wage increases at a maximum of 1% for public sector workers, uh, most public sector workers, you know, not police or or firefighters, but certainly nurses, education workers, and like, um, they they were capped at at this 1% wage increase for the last three years. And so uh, we had heard these warnings that, you know, this would cause, uh, you know, problems with staffing that nurses in particular would either, you know, maybe not train up as a nurse to to begin with. So it kind of discourages you from entering the profession if, you know, you're kind of subject to these, uh, you know, minimal wage increases at a time when cost of living is so huge. It has, you know, sent nurses maybe south of the border thinking they can earn more money and have more flexibility in the States or even with private clinics. Um, So this has exacerbated the problem. And now we, we understand that, you know, the government was aware that this could exacerbate the problem. Um, I, I don't think it was surprising to anyone, but certainly, you know, they are aware of this and they are, you know, digging in their heels. As you mentioned, they are appealing, you know, the court's decision that struck down this law as unconstitutional. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're taking this fight potentially all the way to the top top court, um, the Supreme Court of Canada, which we have seen, you know, labor disputes with the, with Ontario uh, and, and their workers go going to that level. So it could be a while before this is all sorted out. But of course, this is all happening, um, you know, against the backdrop of 
of hospitals in crisis. So we've got this one legal battle that could take months and years and be a very costly and timely process. But, you know, if you go to any hospital or any ER right now, uh, you know, they're, they're really hurting and they're really feeling this, uh, this shortage. So certainly, um, you know, expect Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones to be grilled on this later today. And, and I know this, and I guess this happens all the time, but they're playing with numbers here too. I mean, one of the, the things that Sylvia Jones talked about yesterday uh, in that same presser, I guess, was that, uh, you know, the number of new positions that have been opened and, and filled. No, so many new nurses here in the last three or four years. Uh, but that's only half the equation. I mean, as you've been reporting, uh, a lot of them are walking out the back door for every five that come in. There's three or four that walk out the back door and said, I can't do this anymore. And also, which I thought was an interesting revelation and a key part of this, an awful lot of nurses uh, are still maintaining their 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 dues. They're staying, you know, as nurses that you have to renew every year, of course. But they're not working. They've they've taken themselves out of those frontline positions. Uh, they may have taken other jobs. They could be doing something else or just sitting at home. But they're not doing what we wanted them to do, and that's exacerbating the situation. Statistically, that doesn't show up until, as you mentioned, you walk into an ER and try to get some assistance and find out that there just aren't enough people there. Yeah, you're right. And there are a lot of numbers floating around right now. I mean, the, the latest we're trying to pin down is, you know, exactly how many healthcare workers are, does the province need right now to kind of, you know, alleviate these these staffing problems that we're having. Uh, the, the province can't really give us a straight answer on that. Uh, you know, they have made some changes to, uh, you know, speed up getting nurses into the system. So uh, fast tracking cr the credentialing process, that type of thing. They haven't been able to give us a straight answer on, you know, how many nurses have, have entered the system. But of course, you know, this is just one part of the puzzle. It, it's there's a lot of reasons that nurses are, are leaving the sector are not even joining it in the first place. There's burnout. Um, we've also got a lot of retirements happening right now. And this is something that clearly, you know, the Ford government, as these documents have revealed, coming down the line and they chose you know to to stick to this wage cap uh and and we're really feeling the consequences of it now and so i think that we're going to have to see some type of change come come through from them I, you know the the announcement today is at a shopper's drug mart I'm, I'm not sure on the specifics they're keeping that pretty quiet but it doesn't uh you know it will be health related in some way but i don't think that we're going to hear the answer today on you know what to do with this staffing crisis and so i think some more accountability and some more transparency, um, you know, would, would go a long way in the first place here. It's been weeks since we've heard from these ministers. Yesterday, Sylvia Jones was at an unrelated uh, press conference put on by the Peel police. And, you know, that advisory wasn't actually given out to press gallery reporters. Um, we weren't aware that Sylvia, you know, weren't readily aware, I should say, that Sylvia Jones was going to be making this announcement. And then when reporters got to the announcement, you know, police tried to shut down so-called um, off-topic questions about Bill 124 and the healthcare situation. Now, of course, you know, reporters just kind of breezed past that. Um, which I was I was proud of to see my colleagues, you know, pushing past. Rarely do I ask on-topic questions at a press conference. This is our job to get answers. Um, and as you said, you know, Sylvia Jones didn't quite answer the question. She didn't address any specifics. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, hopefully we can get we can get her down um, and pin her down on an answer today. Just to give a little bit of background here, I know you're aware of this, and but just for our listeners' sake, uh, the documents that that basically expose this whole thing are, were prepared by health ministry staff. 
Uh, and it's 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 kind of a part of the process, isn't it? I mean, you know, a new person is taking over that portfolio, Sylvia Jones, of course, after they were sworn in. Uh, and staff basically say, okay, here's everything you need to know about the portfolio and, and what we're doing and, and the background. And so they did this not to try to, you know, point fingers. They just said, these are some of the problems and some of the, 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 the obstacles that you have to overcome. And uh, according to the, your reporting, numerous times in these documents, they talked about the problems that Bill 124 was creating. So uh, this this was done, I, I want to use the word innocently by staff, just saying, we just want to inform them. But the, the bottom line here that they don't seem to, and that Sylvia Jones seem, doesn't seem to want to acknowledge, is that, you know, they're telling you that this legislation is hurting the industry and it, it's causing part of the problem here. So, it, but they don't seem to want to admit that they're part of the problem. Yeah. And I think, you know, because that this is still a courtroom battle, uh, we we're probably not going to get any, you know, admission uh, that bill 124 has done so much damage uh, at least beyond, you know, what the internal documents are telling us. I, I don't expect to hear uh, some kind of admission from the premier today. Uh, Obviously, you know, the Ford government believes that this was um, a necessary piece of legislation. Um, it, of course, it was introduced just before the pandemic hit uh, at a time when Ford, you know, was, was promising to cut the gravy. I don't think, especially because of COVID, anyone really has an appetite for austerity measures right now. Um, but, you know, the, the Ford government, this, this could end up being a, a very messy and expensive battle uh, for, for the whole province, you know, if this if they do end up taking this appeal further, uh, you know, on, Ontario could be on the hook for retroactive pay to a lot of public sector workers. Um, you know, the Financial Accountability Office kind of pegged this at, at billions of dollars that this could set the province back, um, this decision. And so, you know, we might not have paid for it uh, when it was introduced, but certainly, you know, it, it could be a very costly, uh, you know, expense for Ontario, um, not just in terms of, you know, wages that, that might have to be paid out um, retroactively, but in terms of what we're seeing right now in, in the healthcare system. Well, and just as I know it's an apples and oranges comparison, but the numbers I think are are, are worth noting here. Uh, when they decided to take their opposition to uh, to the, the government's uh, uh, programs here with the carbon tax, etc., they did go all the way to the Supreme Court, and it, you know the reporting you've said it, it took about thirty million dollars uh, out of the coffers. That's your money and mine that they used to do that. And of course, they got shut down even at the highest court. Now I don't know if it's going to cost that much. I don't know if it's going to cost more. But a, a lot of this problem could be solved if they just set that $30 million aside or whatever it's going to be and said, let's put this towards trying to fix the problem as opposed to trying to fight and, and prove that we were right all along on this situation. It's a matter of priorities. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see that that coming from the Ford government because, of course, I mean, which government wants to admit that that they were wrong, but they might be forced to if the, the courts decide that. And, um, of course, you know, they were successful maybe on the, the carbon side, the carbon levy side of things. But, um, you know, in the past, when the liberals were in power, you know, education unions took them to the Supreme Court and uh, for, you know, a wage freeze legislation. And the, the Supreme Court ended up ruling in the favor of unions. And so, you know, that cost Ontario quite a lot of money to retroactively pay these workers um, and, and to, you know, legal costs of all of that involved. And so uh, this could be a, a very long battle and it might not even be the Ford government um you know, that has to kind of deal with the consequences of this, like by the time we do get a solution in the courts. 
Uh, gee, the, the, this whole scenario, I, I, a lot of people just find very, very troubling. That you know, a government that has advice from their own people not to do this and to go this way, not that way, and they ignore that and go ahead with front with oh the green belt yeah that's the other one that comes to mind uh, you know where they have evidence to the contrary but they just decide and uh, i guess the the perplexing part about this is as as we've been talking about here i mean there's some conjecture about why they did what they did with the green belt you know maybe there was money involved i know there's some investigations going into that but i i can't find the justification or even uh, the rationale for moving ahead with something like this when they know that it's crippling the healthcare system yeah, I mean, very tough questions for the premier, no doubt. Um, at the time, obviously, the line from the government was that they wanted to balance the books, um, and and this was one way to do it. I think you know no one's really buying that argument anymore, especially when we see you know cost of living and and how much that has risen in recent years, and then thinking about our teachers and our nurses who are you know held to this. Uh, paltry wage increase annually. Um, it, it's no surprise that you know folks are are leaving the sector, and um, you know this is kind of also impacting the next generation of nurses too. Because from what I'm hearing, this is discouraging people from even entering the field in the first place. You know, there's there's COVID. Uh, the pandemic is is not going away anytime soon. There are these you know uh, this feeling that they're not being compensated fairly for the work that they're doing. Um, you know, I, I think that there's a real opportunity here for the opposition parties even to kind of, you know, jump on this sentiment and really, you know, hold, hold the forward government accountable, um, which I think we can expect to see more of next month when the House comes back. It'll be a fiery question period right off the bat. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I don't care what kind of a PR announcement they're going to be making over the next couple of days with the premier and, and other ministers, but uh, the media and yourself and others have a right and a responsibility and, uh, and, and the inclination that uh, you're going to talk about this. I mean, they don't control the agenda. Uh, people want to find out what's going on here and why. And I think that's, uh, it's why we lean towards uh, places like Queens Park Observer and people like you to make sure that this gets done. Uh, as always, Sabrina, thanks so much for the time today. Uh, stick with it and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Thanks, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.